I'm Adam Jackson. And I'm Gabe Lunas Deseski. We're two serial entrepreneurs and investors here in Silicon Valley. We're building a new talent network called Brain Trust and have created the Way Work Should Work podcast, where we'll dive into new business models, incentive systems, and ownership structures that will affect how every single one of us works. We're joined by top tech investors, business leaders, and academics on the front lines shaping the future of work. Today's guest is Jesse Walden, founder of Variant, an early stage venture firm investing in crypto networks and platforms, building the ownership economy. Prior to founding Variant, Jesse worked as an investor and and on a crypto education program at Andreessen Horowitz. And prior to that, he co-founded an early blockchain startup called Media Chain Labs, which was acquired by Spotify. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, let's, Jesse, let's start with your background. I mean, you, you've got a super interesting path. Um, what got you into tech? What got you into blockchain? And eventually, what got you to start your own fund? Right. So it's a pretty zigzag path if you look at it from, from, from a high level. But there is actually a straight line through it, which I'll try to explain. So um, I guess it goes back to um, sort of my formative years as an, as an early teenager when I was uh, pretty involved with piracy, much more than your average teenager was. Um, <laughs> you know, so like all most teenagers, and this was the early 2000s, most teenagers were downloading lots of uh, movies and music online. And I was too, but I was also um, part of a much smaller community of people who were actually uploading the files that, that everyone else was downloading. And this was sort of at a time when, um, you know, there was no YouTube, there was no Netflix, you know, cable, internet, broadband internet was like just starting to get rolled out everywhere. And I'm hoping the statute of limitations has already expired. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I hope so, too. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, any, any like the, the intentions were innocent. You know, it was really all about just having access to all the world's media at your fingertips. And, you know, this these files were available at that time in, on, on these FTP servers called top sites where your IP address had to be whitelisted. And in order to get whitelisted, you had to play some sort of functional role in the community that was um, that was distributing distributing all this stuff, and so what was interesting about this was a sort of like a, a very tight knit, vertically integrated community, where everyone was just there for for the access, but it was it was sort of exclusive, and again, you had to play some role. Then there was a series of like innovations that basically broke the dam open and allowed everyone to get involved with with piracy in a bigger way. So you know, two thousand three, I think BitTorrent was invented. And piracy shifted from FTP servers to anyone with a BitTorrent client. And then eventually you had the rise of the cloud and you had file walkers and mega upload and rapid share where anyone could just host a file through their browser, download it there as well. And, and that's what really made piracy, I think, sort of a, a very mainstream phenomenon. At that time, you had uh, great music blogs, great film blogs, um, because anyone could distribute uh, media. The reason I mention all this is, you know, that's how I got extremely involved as a as a music junkie. Basically, I just became a huge music fan, and and that led me down a path where I got sort of involved with the music scene. Starting in university, uh, I went to school in Montreal, and there happened to be an amazing music scene at that time. I, I started throwing parties that led to throwing concerts, and eventually, I decided I I want to work with these artists um, in a deeper way, and I got into artist management. And I started an artist management company. I, I worked with sort of big independent artists, 
Solange Knowles, uh, Blood Orange. These are sort of artists you read about on Pitchfork. But the goal of the management company was to use new internet platforms to help these artists reach their fans directly and, and monetize their work independent of the major label system so that they could capture more of the value. And, um, and so that whole, the whole strategy of the management firm was sort of ex- informed by my experience, you know, first in piracy, then later with new social media platforms that sort of came on the back of that. And, uh, and, and so this was a very technology-forward um, artist management firm. I think it was 2013 or so when I read about the Bitcoin white paper. You know, I, I downloaded, I read the whole thing. And to me, what stuck out was the fact that Bitcoin was a peer-to-peer protocol that in many ways was sort of similar to the peer-to-peer protocols I'd used for, for piracies, but in particular BitTorrent, right? There was a lot of commonality in, in the technical stack. But the thing that really struck me was, was the fact that BitTorrent had something that none of the piracy protocols did. And that was, um, it had an identity system built into the protocol. Um, and, and that is public-private key cryptography. It's what allows you know, your Bitcoin to be attributed to you as, as its rightful owner. And I thought, you know, that's what, kind of what was missing from BitTorrent from, from FTP. There was no identity as part of those protocols. And so while everyone was downloading and uploading stuff, nobody had the means to, you know, say, hey, here I am. I'm the creator of this thing or, you know, I'm a fan of your work and communicate with one another. Um, and of course, that's the gap that social media platforms solved, right? That's what YouTube, Facebook, SoundCloud, et cetera, they solved that problem. So when I saw BitTorrent or Bitcoin, rather, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool because it's a peer-to-peer protocol. Nobody controls it. It's user-owned and operated. Yet all the participants are represented in the system and have a means to, um, to attribute the value that, that they own, their Bitcoin, to themselves. So that was the spark for Media Chain Lab, the company I started in 2014. And we had the goal of sort of doing what Bitcoin did for uh, a financial asset for a different type of uh, digital asset, in particular, uh, a digital media asset. We wanted to allow creators to be discoverable through their work and attributed for their work, sort of independent of um, the platform where you consume it, just like a Bitcoin is yours, irrespective of the you know the platform you use to engage with it, whether it's Coinbase or Binance. And, and so we set out to build this low-level protocol that would enable creators to ideally capture more of the value that, um, that they generate on platforms that distribute their work. So I think that's the straight line through all through through my zigzagging career. It's um it's always been a fascination with how media propagates on the internet and then how creators can capture more of the value that that they generate. And today that idea extends not only to creators of media, but creators of all kinds of, of value online. Since, since you know we're all really creators um, when it comes to internet products and services that we use every day. So that's what got me down the rabbit hole. It's what was the spark for Media Chain Labs and that company was, as you mentioned, it was acquired by Spotify, led blockchain R&D there. And then I sort of took, took a switch and put on the investor hat to take a sort of wider view of all the activity that's, that's been happening in the space. Um, and I did that by joining Andreessen Horowitz and, and then more recently by spinning out my own fund, Variant, uh, to focus on really early stage investing in the category. Nice. That's a, it's, it's a fascinating path. Um, especially, I mean, I think a lot of us have that in common where we started on the, um, BitTorrent world and, you know, realized like the, all the power of this peer to peer stuff. And, uh, I, I, I exactly have the same, uh, same background. Um, tell so, so let's switch gears to variant. Tell, tell us about the variant fund 
what its thesis is, where you invest, and then let's get, and then like the user-owned economy, right, more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the variant fund thesis is also informed by the, the history with, with piracy. If you look at crypto networks today, um, you know, I think there's, there's a parallel to draw um, in how they might reach, you know, billions of end users just by looking at the, the sort of recent history of protocol innovations past, right? So BitTorrent is an example that I like to, to jump to, um, where you know, BitTorrent was a protocol breakthrough in that, again, at that time, like there was no streaming, there was no Netflix, no YouTube when BitTorrent was invented in 2003. And here comes this protocol uh, innovation you know, for peer-to-peer transfer of bits that allows everyday internet users to get the experience of instant playback on movies and music. And, you know, that was, that was sort of a new model, new user behavior that just wasn't possible before um, the, the protocol breakthrough enabled users to express demand for it. And sure enough, there was a lot of demand for that mode of accessing media because at its peak, BitTorrent ate up a half of all internet bandwidth. Um, and, one person who saw this, I think, up you know, up close and personal was Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, who at the time was the CEO of MuTorrent, which was one of the biggest clients for downloading stuff. So he understood very well, yeah, people want access to media in this, you know, on-demand format. And that was the, you know, spark for, for starting Spotify, right? So his insight was take this sort of new model exposed by the protocol breakthrough of BitTorrent and productize it, make it clean, accessible, um, and you'll have a, 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 a recipe for a very successful business. And, and he, I think he was right about that. Now, if you fast forward to today, I think there's, there's a parallel in what's going on in crypto in that crypto tokens are a protocol level sort of breakthrough like BitTorrent was. We can now move value in the way that BitTorrent allowed us to move information peer to peer instantly to anyone anywhere in the world. And the result, I think, is, has also been the exposure of sort of a new model um, or a new way of building internet products and services. And that sort of new model exposed by the protocol breakthrough of crypto um, is an opportunity now for, for founders who are sort of doing what Daniel Ek did, which is productizing it and making it accessible to a much wider audience. And, and when I say, you know, there's a new model, let, let me be clear about what I mean. And it's, it's that... Um, because we can distribute value like packets, there's now the potential to build internet products and services that are entirely owned and operated by their users. Um, and, and that's what's core to the success of Bitcoin and Ethereum today, which are the first you know, crypto networks where there is no company. There, there's just a network of machines all over the world that are run by you know, independent people who actually own uh, or, and earn an ownership stake in the network in exchange for their contributions. And that same idea is now starting to get productized and be realized in other verticals outside of the, the you know, very technical um, communities that, that sort of comprise the early Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, uh, networks. So you're starting to see it in finance, you're starting to see it in um, consumer marketplaces and, you know, in, in like the marketplace you're building in, in, in brain trust. So that's, the variant fund thesis is that you know, crypto networks have exposed an economic foundation for the next generation of internet products and services, um, which are going to be owned and operated by users. And 
you know, this may sound like a, a nice social endeavor, which I think it is. Um, but in fact, it's really just the most market driven way to build networks. It's, it's the, you know, it's a, when you give users ownership over the products and services they use, it's a very strong incentive for them to adopt these, you know, new platforms and contribute to them. So the, the view is that we can build networks that are bigger, um, and grow faster by virtue of, uh, of, of deploying this new model. And so, so Jesse, I'm curious, like, it's clear, like, what the benefit is to the user, right? Like, you, you get to be a part of the networks that you operate on. Um, I, I want to kind of slim it down for, like, why would investors want to invest in user-owned networks, right? Like, maybe you can apply that lens. Um, you know, there's, there's tons of venture guys that are, they're kind of, like, trying to discover this new space. But, like, as an investor, why would you want to, you know, partake in, in one of these user-owned networks? Yeah, so... The, the view is that um, that these networks can grow larger than traditional, you know, shareholder-owned companies can, um, and the reason for that is that they um, user-owned networks um, can remain aligned with users over time, even as even as they scale up and grow, which I think is not the case for for many shareholder-owned platforms, um, and that's because you know traditional companies internet companies in particular, they follow a very predictable path um, of growth, which is sort of S-shaped, right? You, you start off slow, then you hit some exponential growth and you sort of hockey stick up and to the right. But at some point you plateau. Um, and once you plateau, that's when shareholders start to say, okay, now it's time to get a return on the investment that fueled that hockey stick growth. And we're going to start extracting value from our users. So like with Facebook, that means more ads and on your eyeballs, right? And it actually lowers the quality of the product. People start leaving, you start to get negative network effects at that point. And it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a war of attrition. Will the, will the investors extract the too much to the point that everyone leaves or, you know, or, or to the point where the product just becomes less useful. Um, now user owned networks don't follow this same trajectory. And that's because um, there's, you know, at, at the point that you hit the top of the S curve, um, you have sort of a, um, a group of people governing the platform um, who don't want to extract and, and squeeze the, uh, the other users, their peers, um, because that would, you know, that would hurt their own interests, right? And so the network can re remain better aligned with users over time, and as a result, serve as a more solid foundation for those users to continue to build on top of and extend. And so yeah. it may be the case that you actually don't hit the same top of the S curve um, because a user-owned network that is sort of cooperatively aligned um, with the people that interact with it every day is, is sort of a better foundation for trust to continue building and building on, you know, more, more and more uh, services on top. Um, and, and just one other way to sort of, I guess, uh, come at this in, in, in more concretely is um, if you look at traditional, you know, uh, networks like Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, and so on. Um, one of the ways this sort of S-curve extraction um, manifests is, is very um, evident in the developer ecosystem, right? So many of these companies had very rich um, developer APIs with a, a rich ecosystem of third-party apps. Um, and as they hit the top of their S-curve, they shut off those APIs and killed the, the sort of innovation that was happening from third-party developers, 
um, in order to, you know, again, squeeze and extract as much value as they could in-house. So don't let the value go to third parties. Um, with, with crypto networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, you have rich developer ecosystems of developers building lots of third-party apps on top, but nobody can shut it off. And in fact, nobody would want to shut it off because the developers building on top actually own the underlying platform. So they benefit um, from its, you know, uh, sort of composable reuse. Um, so that that's how, the, you know, you can draw the conclusion that these networks can grow larger through better economic and, and sort of governance alignment with their users. And, and, and that means that if you invest early um, in these networks, there's still potential for venture scale returns on your early investment as you know the value uh, you know appreciates with with more demand and more use yeah i mean it's it's funny we you know we we met i think a couple of years back and um, both of us had both us and you had the sort of the the seeds of this were starting to germinate and um, you know we've all like we've sort of independently arrived at the same conclusion that you know user owned and operated networks will grow faster and become more valuable than investor owned Right. It's a, it's a simple right. premise and it's it's not just better for the participants like it, it, it's it's not just morally better. It's just it's actually better for business. Right. It's better for everybody. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's and, and, and another facet of this is that if your users have a direct economic stake in the success of a platform, they're highly incentivized to one, adopt it to contribute in deeper ways than they would otherwise. And if, if, if you zoom out. And look at the big picture of how sort of software has evolved over the last 20 years. Um, this may this this isn't really that far fetched, even though it might sound like it at you know at, at first uh, first hearing it, you know. And and the reason it's not that far fetched is, you know, the biggest I think surprise in software in the last 20 years is the success of open source, um, right? Like today, it powers you know trillions of dollars of value that's been built on top of it, you know, from all the devices in our pockets to many of the, the major internet platforms that we use, each of them depend on open source components. And, and those are components that are crowdsourced from people all over the world. Um, and, and so that's an example of, of you know, people just sort of contributing um, immense value. And that's, that's um, doesn't come from a company. It comes from, you know, ultimately the users, the developers who want to use this stuff in, in their applications. And in turn, the, um, the applications that have been built with open source components, like many of the Web2 platforms today, they too crowdsource much of their value from their users, whether that's content or products in a marketplace. You know, the, the value of many of these platforms is the users. Now that we have this means of distributing value at internet scale in, in very granular transmissions, and, and that is, you know, the technology breakthrough of tokens, it's, it's no wonder that users are going to take the next step and start to contribute to platforms in deeper ways. It's not just going to be open source code or, you know, content or products. It's going to be actual operations of the platform itself. And that's what you see in Bitcoin. That's what you see in Ethereum. It's what you're going to start to see across many more consumer facing marketplaces and networks. Um, and if you do, if, if this does play out and it, it already is, um, it means that the cost to building these networks drops dramatically because no longer are you hiring people into a company. Instead, you're outsourcing the work or you're crowdsourcing the work from users who earn a direct stake in the platform value for, for their contribution. Um, and that's just a much more efficient model, both, both economically, you know, in terms of financial capital and, and production capital, 
um, than, than sort of the corporate model where you have to raise ton, tons of value and you can only sort of tap into the talent pool of people that, that are willing to, you know, or, or are allowed to work at your company and earn equity investments. So that's another reason that I think these, these networks can be more valuable due to their sort of efficiency gains. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to just double click into that for a second. Cause I think it's actually, it's not a well understood part about why you would want to organize a network this way. Um, you know, typically and Adam and I've been around this and as of you, like typically you go and you raise a billion dollars of venture money to build a two-sided marketplace or two-sided network. And you invest that in, in essentially either subsidizing one side or, um, or trying to, like incentivize people to come and play in the sandbox, right? Um, I, want, I want to use maybe even a, a more concrete example. And like, let, let's talk a little bit about how a token can actually be used to help a marketplace grow faster than traditional kind of, uh, you know, investor-owned marketplaces. Um, and also how it can self solve some of the, the problems in the early days of a marketplace when you're trying to get enough supply, enough demand to kind of show up and, and play in the sandbox. Right. Well, well. So I know you guys had a had another episode of the podcast with Robert Leshner from from Compound, right? That I like to use that um, that, that marketplace or his product as um, as an example. I'm not sure if you guys if that would be redundant for your listeners, but um, but that, I think that's a really good example of, of 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 how to sort of bring one of these projects to market and what the advantages of doing so are. But let me, I mean, let me know. Is that is that going to be yeah. redundant? No, no, no. Go, go ahead. Yeah, do a, definitely a high level on comp, and then as as well, um, if you can think of other applications in two sided marketplaces that that aren't DeFi, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. We're, we're also happy to talk about how Brain Trust did it. If you want, if you want, like dig into that and use that as an example as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so yeah. Let's 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 do that. I, I think it'd be great to to talk about it. So, okay. So, um, I'll I'll start by start by saying that I think, um, yeah, usually with, you know, the classic problem with any new network or marketplace is, is a chicken and egg problem. Like how do you bootstrap supply or demand, um, in order to get network effects going. Right. And, um, and, and as you mentioned, like typically one way you do this is by raising venture capital and, and, you know, subsidizing one side or the other. Um, and, but the issue with venture capital is that it's, or not the issue, but one fact of venture capital is that it's dilutive, right? It's it's dilutive to the founders, um, and you know, in crypto networks, um, there's an opportunity to sort of use that dilution in in a very productive way. That's kind of similar to the venture capital model, but but slightly different. So in in venture, um, you know, you raise you raise a fundraising round, and subsequent rounds thereafter, and the early founders, the early investors, all get diluted by those subsequent rounds of financing. And the idea is. You're going to use that financing to, to, you know, fuel growth and grow the pie for everyone. Um, in crypto networks, you, you do something kind of similar, but uh, there's an important nuance, and that is um, you create what's called like a token table. It's kind of like a cap table. Um, and what you do is, you know, the, the founding team will maybe build a product, build, build a network that's useful and put it out there, make it accessible to anyone to run. Um, and then they'll take some tokens. And they'll distribute them to the users of the platform or service as an incentive to drive, you know, drive their adoption um, and, and fuel growth. And that distribution of tokens 
could be seen as being dilutive to the founders and their early investors. But when you think about it, it's it's not really any different from the dilution that um, you know that's taken on in traditional VC, and that that uh, distribution of tokens to users is what's driving the growth. And so it is hopefully a tie to raise all boats. Um, and so I know with with you know what you guys are building with Braintrust, you're doing something similar, right? Which is at some point you you, you have well you, right now you have a product in the market, and you know it's it's useful. People are using it. There's there's um, you know demand from Fortune 500 companies on one side. On the other side, you have you have a lot of tech talent that um, you know are, are uh, being hired by these guys. Um, and in the middle, you you tradition you have a marketplace that's sort of facilitating these transactions. What's different about your marketplaces versus traditional talent marketplaces is that the users, both suppliers and demand on both sides, are able to earn some of the platform value um, in the middle. And, and not only the value, but the, uh, the, the governance over the platform itself as well, right? So that they can ensure that the values of the platform remain aligned with them. And, and that's an incentive for both to sort of jump in and participate. Um, and so, I mean, I'll... I'll leave it to you guys to fill in the, the, the blanks there because that's a very high-level summary. But suffice to say that you guys are driving growth um, through distribution of the platform value to the users directly, right? And that's that's how you've gotten started and how you continue to fuel growth of the platform. For, for sure. You know, it's funny you mentioned earlier, like um, raising tons of venture to, to bootstrap and, and get the thing off the ground. You know, we have... Um, eight employees, including us, um, half of us don't take a salary. Um, and we've been able to build this giant marketplace that's doing millions and millions of dollars a year in uh, GSV and growing like now it's like 40% month over month. And like, we have no, like our core team barely exists, right? I mean, like everything done from engineering to UI design to marketing, copy, social media, is all being done by the community in exchange for tokens. And what, what's interesting is like almost it's 80, we pulled them 87% of the people that like have a brain trust token or it's, it's not a live token yet. So it's a credit to, that will convert to a token next year. Um, right. I've never touched it. They've never custody a token before. And, and many of them had never even heard the term token in this context. So we're kind of like, how could this be an incentive mechanism if it if it doesn't even exist and most of these people have never heard of it? And it turns out, like when you just explain it to them in terms of control, like yeah. that you get to vote on the rules, that like they love that, right? Because it's because what they're afraid of is what you just described a few minutes ago. What Facebook and Twitter and all these guys did was as the thing starts to get useful you know, the, the fees go up and it gets, it becomes, you know, uh, uh, very extractionary. And so if you're a freelancer making, you know, money, basically making your living on a network, like you care a lot about what the fees are. And so these folks are like, it, it's become this, like, it was, it was surprising to us how quickly this became like a clear incentive mechanism for them. So it's, it's exactly your, your example. And I'd love to dig into something here, Jesse, which is that, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's maybe 20 or 30 of us that kind of see the world in this way right now, right? It's still like, uh, yeah, and it, we've been, it's really, really enjoyed the conversations with you. Um, but this space hasn't matured enough yet because nobody can point to the example of right. this thing growing faster and becoming more valuable than a traditional network, right? And it, and it with the and exception it of maybe Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin may be the one exception to the rule where 
it really did bootstrap the network in the early days. But the, the fact that the miners earned Bitcoin for securing the network, that it solved the chicken and egg problem and got secu- got the network secured. And then now Bitcoin is, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar network at scale, largest computing network in the world. Um, and so it's the first example, but you're right. Like we haven't yet seen an example that's, you know, not on the fringe and more consumer facing. And, and part of that, I think it has to do with the fact that as you touched on, most consu- end users, consumers don't understand the value of a token. It needs to be productized. We still need that Spotify moment where, you know, great founders like yourselves come along and do what Daniel Eck did back when he started uh, his company, right? Which is take the insights of the new model exposed by the protocol breakthrough and turn it into a product that's way more accessible to everyone. And, and yeah. that, that I think is going to be the zero to one moment where, you know, there way more than 30 people realize there's a huge opportunity. Yeah. There, there is a new model for building internet products and services in this way. And I, and I actually think there's kind of like, you need, you need those examples to pull out kind of three con- core kind of constituents that, that like make this the new way. Like one is you need to show why this is important to investors, right? Like you need to show that these things can become, can grow very, very fast, become valuable. And unlock new markets. And unlock new markets. The second thing is you need to show that to the next generation of entrepreneurs. People need to get excited about building internet companies in this way. And the third to your point is, you know, users need to see the value of, of governance and ownership. Um, and, and that's kind of like what creates an ecosystem for the next generation of, of you know, internet platforms, internet networks that are user owned. And we're yep, just absolutely. not quite there yet. So I'd love to hear like, you know, what do you, how do you think the next kind of couple years of the ownership economy play out? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I totally agree with you that it's, you know, you need winning examples and case studies to point to in order to get the next generation fired up about it and sort of following the playbook. Um, and the good news is that I think, you know, emanating from the crypto space today, there there is increasingly more and more of a playbook. So it's, you know, it started with Bitcoin, then Ethereum, you know, um, first two networks to really achieve success in an entirely user-owned and operated way. Now, on top of Ethereum, which is a developer platform, you are starting to see lots and lots of developers in the, you know, the, the category of uh, DeFi or decentralized finance um, start to employ a similar model for marketplaces um, for, uh, that are financial in nature. Like, you know, Compound is, is a marketplace for lending and borrowing. There's Uniswap, which is an exchange, right? Um, and, you know, so, so think Lending Club, think Coinbase, right? Um, same, same marketplace. What's different is not the business model. The business model for for each is the same. There's a fee taken on transactions in the marketplace. What's different is what's done with the fee, which is it's going to be distributed directly to the end users who govern the platform in exchange for their work. Um, And so so you're starting to see that happen in DeFi. And many of these platforms, um, these DeFi platforms have been wildly successful at driving liquidity to their marketplaces by using this model. So there's some validation there that, yeah, it's, it's working here too. Um, and, and, and now you're starting to see it sort of, I would say, cross the chasm in other verticals that are more consumer facing. Um, you know, brain trust is one. Reddit is running this great experiment right now where they're starting to distribute tokens to, um, to those that contribute to subreddits on the platform, like um, moderators and, and you know, people who post content. They're able to earn community currencies 
um, the value which derives from uh, product features that Reddit's built, like private um, or premium subreddits, you know, gifts, badges that you can purchase with those community currencies. And, and the idea is that as the demand to participate in these communities grows as a result of the great work that the, you know, the, the community is contributing, the, the value of those currencies should go up in value and all the early contributors uh, benefit from that. And Reddit Inc. also can benefit from that too. But most importantly, value aside, will be that the, these community currencies will confer some governance value over the uh, subreddits to ensure that you know that the 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 subs can sort of continue to exist and operate independent independent of Reddit Inc. And I think that's pretty that's pretty key and exciting. Um, so so you're starting to see it in in consumer social, um, but too early to call that a breakout success. So let's keep jamming on um, on the user own economy. So this like we I think we've done a good job here, the three of us, of, of kind of making the case here that these user-owned networks will grow faster, be more valuable than investor-owned. What, like, I, I, I feel like, so Branch Trust plays in the talent economy. The, it's, it's kind of low-hanging fruit. It's kind of a no-brainer. The DeFi thing, I think, is Robert's really done a great job there, um, and others, of course. Um, the, I think gig economy, like, kind of the last mile, food delivery, pe- you know, people delivery, like, I think that's low hanging fruit too, because you're seeing the extraction part of the S curve really hurt the participants. What, like, what are your thoughts on gig economy succumbing to this? Do incumbents tokenize themselves? Like will Uber issue a token or is this fertile land for disruptive new startups? Yeah, no, I, th- I think certainly the latter. I, so what's interesting is both Uber and Airbnb um, have petitioned the SEC to be allowed to make their supply side hosts or drivers, respectively, stock option holders, because they understand that, um, you know, giving ownership as an incentive to those suppliers is a much stronger way to build defensible network effects and lower the cost of acquiring those suppliers, retaining those suppliers. Um, however, it's, you know, it's, I, I think it is a challenge for a big company like Uber, Airbnb to sort of pivot their model get regulatory approval and, and really prioritize this from, you know, as a first principle of the platform, because that's not where they started. Um, so I do think there is an opportunity for startups to come in with, uh, with this model as, as sort of a core tenant or keystone of their product experience and attract and, you know, users and build marketplaces because of it. Um, so, and, and, and to your question about, you know, is the gig economy right for this? I, I think absolutely. Um, and, and you're starting to see sort of um, manifestations of the same idea um, in, in this space. So there's, there's a startup called Dumpling, um, which is, uh, you know, food delivery marketplace. And what's interesting about Dumpling is that um, they empower the suppliers in, in their network, people who, who do the shopping and delivery, um, to actually own their own business independent of the platform. So yeah. rather than, um, you know, than, than commoditizing the supply side, they're actually empowering, um, you know, the individuals who operate local delivery services um, to build relationships directly with their, with their customers. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like the Shopify model versus yeah. the Amazon model, right? Like right. Amazon wants to commoditize all their suppliers and make it all just appear as Amazon prime, right? Um, you don't know where it's coming from. Whereas Shopify is really embracing the individuality of, um, of each of the suppliers or retailers on their platform 
and helping them to connect with their their customers direct. Um, so I think dumpling is a step in in, in the right direction, and, and the next step is to take some of the platform value itself and give that to the suppliers as well as an incentive um, for them to, to contribute in deeper ways and ensure that the platform stays aligned with them over time. Interesting, interesting. Um, so I want to I just talk a little bit about from the investor lens real quick, and then we'll, we'll kind of transition into what we call the lightning round. Um, okay. But let's talk a little bit about from the investor side, right? Like, Right now, the, the state of the world seems to be that there's kind of regular traditional venture funds that, that you know, raise large, you know, large institutional capital to invest in equity in Delaware C corporations, right? Yeah. And then you have kind of an emerging class of fund managers and investors um, in, in crypto, but typically much smaller funds. Um, and, but there's kind of a gap in the middle. Right, like uh, both a gap in knowledge and expertise and fund size. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd love to explore kind of like how do you think about that gap between like the the entrenched institutional funds and like you know kind of the upstarts of, of where you're at right now, and, and how do you think uh, how do you think this evolves in the in the in the coming years? Yeah, that's no, great. It's a great question. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I think for for the most part. Um, Traditional VCs have, have not been super active in, in the crypto space. Um, the, the term, the ownership economy, is, is something, you know, I, I published a blog post, uh, I guess, about a month ago now. You guys have been talking about the user-owned economy for some time, right? But it's, as, as you pointed out earlier, it's not well understood. Um, so there's only a few people active there right now. Um, and, and then separately, there's this whole ecosystem of crypto funds. Some of which are actually, you know, fairly large. Like A16Z, my, my former employer, um, has a five hundred million dollar crypto fund. Paradigm is 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 up there as well. Um, and so, so there are a lot of funds investing in user owned networks. But currently, those are for the most part limited to what I would call crypto native networks, right? Which yeah. are networks like Bitcoin, networks like Ethereum. Um, and here at Variant, I'm I'm investing in crypto native networks because they're you know like I said earlier they're sort of the first to uh, to realize the, the the success of this new model, um, but they're you know I'm also trying to invest in founders building the ownership economy, which are those founders that are productizing the insights of crypto networks and making them more accessible. And there, I think there's not really many VCs uh, yeah. playing at all. Right, because there's there's sort of a, a disconnect on both sides of the spectrum. The traditional VCs don't really see the opportunity in crypto networks. They don't see the new model, um, and the crypto the, the crypto native investors um, are sort of looking, you know, maybe a bit myopically at the technology stack, the developer infrastructure, and what developers are doing today, which is totally a viable strategy. And I'm I'm doing that as well, but I'm also thinking a little bit further out about how this technology stack goes on to touch billions of end users. And I think that happens by virtue of productizing um, the, the, the technology breakthrough. So if I had to speculate on where we're at, um, you know, two, five years out from now, um, you know, what, I, what I'd like to say is that we'll have a, a breakthrough ownership economy platform that is consumer facing within that time horizon. And that will be the zero to one moment where both, the traditional VCs and the crypto VCs realize, hey, this model is bigger than than um, than we thought it is, and it's actually this new foundation for building uh, internet products and services. 
And, and that means, you know, there's more competition for variant, which, you know, which is tough, but it's also a good thing because it means there's many more opportunities. And, and hopefully by that point, variant will have become synonymous uh, with, with, um, with this model or with the ownership economy. And, and uh, that'll be an opportunity to partner with way more founders. And so there's also going to be like that first success story is going to bring in a lot of entrepreneurs. Right, right, um, right. To, to go and so there's actually going to be more supply of of really talented entrepreneurs that see this as a new way to build platforms and networks. So yeah. I, I think it's yes, there'll be more capital, but there will the ecosystem will just evolve. So there'll be more entrepreneurs and actually more businesses being built in these categories. Exactly, and and in fact, it's worth noting that. Um, you can you can quantitatively say this is already happening right now. A16Z did this, this put out this great study actually that shows in in the crypto world, um, price is actually a leading indicator for for talent flowing into the space. So you know, yes, um, at if you look at the price of crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum over the last ten years or whatever, there's many boom and bust cycles. Um, and you could say, oh, it's all a wash when, when the money flows out, but it's actually not the case. And what is what, what, what the data shows is that when the price goes up, it actually does attract the attention of a lot of developers who rush in and start you know, tinkering with the technology and building stuff. Um, and many of, many of those that rush in actually stick around even when the price washes out in, in, in the, the bus cycle. Um, and so there is this sort of linear march to more and more talent getting into the space and getting started. And that talent, of, you know, as we touched on in the crypto native world, is current are, are currently building DeFi platforms that are user owned and operated. And so, to your point, once there's one more breakout success, there'll be another cycle. Um, many more entrepreneurs will rush in, and that that's how uh, you know this space will will reach mainstream adoption. It's, it, it all goes back to incentives. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah, and and uh, I want to stress the point again that user-owned and operated networks are not just a social endeavor. They are just the most market-driven way to build networks and build network effects. Um, and, and again, it's, it's just direct economic incentives are, are a hell of a drug to get people started um, using a platform and contributing to it in deeper ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, this is one of those things and one of the reasons that we love talking to you about this is this is definitely a contrarian perspective. Um, but but I think all of us are we're going to look back on this and say like well we were contrarian and we were right yeah and that's kind of where the interesting magic happens right absolutely yeah <laughs> cool. yeah so yeah let, let's transition to this uh, what we call kind of a lightning round so it's just a uh, stream of consciousness kind of quick wrapped up answers we'll do this for just a couple minutes um, for, first question is Jesse what have you learned about yourself during shelter in place. Interesting. I mean, I've, I've, I've learned that, um, hmm, there's, there's a lot, I guess I've, I've sheltered in place, um, in New York city during the height of the pandemic. And, and then more recently I've, I've been up in Canada, which is where my wife is from. Um, I'm, while I was born and bred in, in the city, I've learned that I can actually be pretty, pretty down with country living. Um, so, so that, that's been great. And it's been, it's been a realization, I think coming back to our conversation that, um, you know, it's really possible to work from anywhere. And if the ownership economy is going to be realized, I think that, you know, there needs to be more acceptance of that because talent is all over the world. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess I found that, um, you know, you can you can do it anywhere. Um, so that that bodes well for the thesis and, and sort of, you know, where, where I think the world is heading. 
Well, we couldn't agree more with that. We, uh, you know, we've been the, the distributed engineering team people before that was a cool thing to be. Uh, second question. Well, so, so uh, tacking onto that, um, Silicon Valley, you think it's on its way up or on its way down? Well, I think Silicon Valley is really a state of mind um, more than more than a physical place. And, and I think I've, I've always kind of believed that because, um, you know, I've, I've never really lived in Silicon Valley. I spent a ton of time out there, but I sort of refused to give up on, on my roots in New York. But I definitely consider myself part of the Silicon Valley state of mind. Um, and, and so I think, you know, with the, the way information propagates now, more and more people are joining the Silicon Valley in, in the sky. Um, and, and that's, I think, only going to continue irrespective of what, what happens to the physical location. Sure. So I think related to that to kind of the, our views on future of work, what's an old way of working that you hope never comes back? Yeah. Ooh, I, I mean, I would love to, um, you know, not ever see people wearing suits on the on the subway in New York going to some like crammed office. It just seems it seems archaic. Um you know, and, and that's not to say that like, you know, in-person meeting is, is without any merit or value. I mean, certainly there, there is a value to, um, to having face-to-face, -face, uh, conversations with folks, but I, I think just the, the sort of like, uh, drab routine of, of, of suiting up and, and like crunching into an office, having tons of meetings that way is, is, is gotta be a thing of the past for, for most industries. Yeah, I can't agree more there. Uh, fi final question inspired by uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, and granted, this whole conversation may be the answer <laughs> to this question, but what's something, Jesse, that you believe strongly that is a widely unpopular view today? Yeah, it's so, yeah, I think I think really the thesis of, of my fund is is that um, <laughs> is for me, right? But but I guess maybe just to go, go a little bit deeper into it, I think... Um, I think the CEOs of, of the future, the leaders of, you know, these new networks that we're describing um, are going to look and, and sort of feel quant qualitatively different from the CEOs and founders um, of, of sort of like the Web2 era um, in that they're, they're not going to be um, just sort of like excellent operators and executors. They're going to be something more akin to like a politician, which may maybe sound maybe is the wrong, too strong a word, or it comes with a negative connotation, but they have to be sort of um, stewards of an open community of contributors, which is a, a very different than sort of taking a top-down command and control approach to building a company. Um, and 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 so, yeah, I, th I think that means that um, the archetypal sort of founder that Silicon Valley has gotten excited about um, over the last 10, 15 years, um, maybe sort of the wrong persona type um, for this new space. And, and so it'll be interesting to see, um, to see how that transitions given, you know, the earlier comments on the future of work, the potential for these networks to be open to a global talent pool. Um, hopefully it means we see a much more diverse set of, of leaders emerging in the space. No doubt. Yeah, we yeah. can agree more. Well, listen, Jesse, this was, an awesome conversation as always is with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people uh, learn more about you, reach you? Yeah, um, so the, the fund website is variant.fund um, and I have a lot of personal writing on, on my blog, which is just jessewalden.com. Yeah, we've been, we've been a fan. Your, your progressive decentralization piece is great. Your, your recent launch post was awesome. Uh, big fan of your work. Um, all right, well, hey, thanks again for being here. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Great to talk to you guys. Great to have you.